There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I'm going to cover the entire chapter. I'm not going to have you stand again, but I do ask that you pray with me. Or I echo what Lisa prayed. Come and work among us, Lord. We all need different things from you, but we all need something from you. I pray, uh, make us aware of what that is and then meet that need. Asking your name. Amen. Welcome back to our study in 1 Samuel. In chapter 27, something extraordinary happened. It's the kind of thing that clinches the case for the Bible's honesty and realism. In this respect, it is like the gospel records that include the failings of the disciples, despite the very high esteem in which they were held by the early church. Here's an episode in the life of the great David that has been recorded for the simple reason that it happened and therefore contributes to the Bible's candid portrayal of one of its greatest characters. This chapter records a period when David chose to live under the protection of none other than the Philistines and to a certain extent at least he collaborated with them. The severity of the scandal of this fact must be appreciated. You see, the Philistines were the deadly arch enemies of Israel. So it is astonishing, to say the very least, to hear that the one who was expected to become Israel's king should have this skeleton in his closet. Up until this point, David has been almost flawless in his character. He was an obedient shepherd, a submissive servant, and a forgiving enemy. But today we come to a period where David comes to a spiritual slump and he makes a series of drastic mistakes. I think this passage can be very helpful to everyone in here. It's encouraging to those of us who have fallen in the past to see that a great man like David also wasn't immune to failure. But it's also a warning to us of the danger of drifting away from God. It was Corey Ten Boom who said, God can give a straight blow with a crooked stick. He blesses us in spite of our blunders. This is certainly true of David. He is a great man. And he's a godly man. But he makes his share of mistakes, especially here where it seems that God is missing. The amazing part of this story is that even though God doesn't make an appearance, he still works out his will in this story. God does not abandon David, even when he falls into fear and stumbles into folly. God still rescues this man from the corner that he paints himself in by his very own treachery. God is still gracious to David, even when he makes mistakes. He blesses us in spite of our blunders. Look at verse 1 with me. 
And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. The first phrase I want us to notice is, And David said in his heart. David was a lover of God who talked to God constantly and wrote psalms about the Lord very expressively. In this situation, however, we do not see David talking to the Lord, but instead talking to his heart. The Hebrew phrase translated in the heart means literally that David was just talking to himself. And in so doing, he got all mixed up. He came to wrong conclusions. And he fell into depression. Now, if you're talking to yourself and reminding yourself of the Lord's promises in Scripture, that is wonderful. But that's not what David is doing. He ends up living in enemy territory for almost a year and a half because he talked to himself rather than talking to the Lord. Interestingly, not one time in this entire chapter does it say that David prayed. Not one time does it say that David called out to the Lord. He just thought to himself. That's what happens when you exchange spiritual reliance on God to self-sufficiency. One writer said, Prayerlessness is the petri dish for bad decisions, the incubator for wrong turns, and the assembly line of regretful moves. I wish I could think of stuff like that. Listen, anytime you begin to accentuate and verbalize the negatives in your life, you are headed for trouble. Pessimism is an enemy because we become what we dwell on. You've seen people who predominantly portray the slouch and grouch routine. They are never happy. They always have to criticize something. You don't dare ask them how they are doing because they might tell you and tell you and tell you. And if your mental outlook is negative, your life also can become negative. But I can do the same thing oh so very easily. I talk to myself and convince myself of all kinds of things that are completely untrue. I think a lot of us talk to ourselves from time to time. We convince ourselves that we're right as we make our way to Gath, as we defect, and as we rebel. You will persuade yourself. You'll build up a case that's airtight. You will be your own best ally. You'll feel more justified with each passing moment as you talk to yourself. But here's the danger with talking to yourself and with talking to your heart. According to Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is desperately wicked above all things. That means when you're having a good heart-to-heart talk with yourself, you're getting counsel that is desperately wicked. When I talk to myself apart from God, I am being deceived. What are we to do instead? Philippians 4 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known, not to yourself, 
not to your pastor, not to your spouse, but make your request known unto God. The result, the verse goes on to say, and the peace of God will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the puzzle with David's words is that he imagined the hand of Saul to prevail. He said, I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now, his experience through these admittedly difficult days had been that Saul had sought him every day, but God did not give him into Saul's hand. What made David now think that God's protection of him would one day fail? Did he think that God's protection was like luck that must sooner or later run out? Had he forgotten the words of his friend Jonathan at their last meeting, who said, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. Now, so far, Jonathan's words have proved to be astonishingly true. Why did David now think that the hand of Saul would find him? You see, in about three years, David's exile would end, and he would be ruling the people of Judah and Hebron. But at this point, he had no way of knowing that. You see, it takes both faith and patience to receive God's promises. And David seemed to be wavering at this point in his life in both of these essential things. But be sure of this one thing. When we start to look at God through our circumstances, instead of looking at our circumstances through God's eyes, we will always lose faith. Now, in fairness to David, he has endured a very long trial. For seven years, he has lived the life of a fugitive, constantly in danger. Imagine the pressure of escaping death day in and day out. Now, eventually, David began to feel sorry for himself. After all, he was innocent. He had spared Saul's life on multiple occasions. He deserved better than this, he thought. Where was God? Why didn't God do something? All you have to do is read some of the Psalms that David wrote during this period to see just how low he has gotten emotionally. Psalm 10.1 laments, O Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I need you the most? Or Psalm 13.1, How long will you forget me, Lord? Forever? How long will you hide from me? How long must I worry and feel sad in my heart all the day long? How long will my enemy win over me? Ever said anything like that? Do David's words sound familiar? They do to me. For in certain circumstances, I have said things very similar to that. Verse 2, please. Then David arose and went over with 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household. And David with his two wives, Ahanoam and the Jezreelites, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. There is something almost sinister there, I think, in the words, went over. The implication of went over to Achish seems to be that David offered the services of his men to the Philistine king. David had crossed a boundary that day, and not just a physical one. 
he had went over to the other side in his heart. Now, this was quite different from the last time we had gone to Gath, probably hoping to remain unnoticed. If you remember, at the beginning of his exile, David had fled to Gath to safety for safety, only to discover that his life was still in danger. And he had to act like a madman in order to escape. But at that time, David was alone. While now he had two wives and was the commander of 600 valiant soldiers. With wives and children, this could have been a group of two to 3,000 people that was with him right now. In verse 3, it says that David settled in Gath. Can you believe that? If you have been with us during this series, the name of Gath might strike a familiar chord. If you look back to chapter 17, verse 4, you see just how incredible this is. It reads, A champion named Goliath who was from Gath. Just a few years back, Gath had been the heart of the enemy's territory and the spawning place of David's giant enemy, Goliath. But now... David has settled down there to live. And he was now consorting with those people who were bent on destroying his people, and worse, were blasphemers of the God that David served. It just seems incredible to us that David has failed this dramatically. We thought he had it all together. Kind of like those two hillbillies, Jake and Jed. One day, Jake comes in to find Jed putting a puzzle together. Jake asks, how's the puzzle going, Jed? Jed says, I'm putting in the last piece right now, and it only took me ten days. Jake says, I've never put a puzzle together. Is that good, doing it in ten days? Jed puffs out his chest and says, you bet your sweet bippy it's good. Just look at this box. It says from two to four years. And sometimes, just like that, we think, I've got all the pieces together and everything in place, but in reality, we're not nearly as smart as we think that we are. Now, I understand why David blew it and defected. None of us are as quite as shiny and smooth as we want people to think. Remember the last time David was here, he acted crazy. He clawed on the city of gates and allowed, and I quote here, spittle to fall into his beard. So why go back? Well, we're not told, but I do have an idea. I think he went back for the same reason that the high school nerd goes back to his 10th year high school reunion. The last time they saw him, he was wearing a Star Trek shirt, his face was covered in acne, and he was carrying a chessboard around. No offense, Shane. Ten years later, however, he's a dot-com billionaire, and he flies in on his own jet. His acne's cleared up, and he looks like he stepped off the cover of a GQ magazine. He could have said, I might have been a nerd back then, but geeks rule the world now, baby. And maybe, just maybe, that's what David is doing here. I I may have had spit in my beard last time, but look at me now. 
Also, it's interesting that David has came off a series of personal victories and not giving in to his flesh and killing King Saul. But often, and we've talked about this before, after mountaintop experiences come deep valleys. Just ask Elijah. Speaking of mountaintops, he had just left Mount Carmel, where he had called down fire to defeat the 450 prophets of Baal. Now, that had to be an exhilarating and a real boost to his faith. I mean, I've never called down fire. When I was young, I used to enjoy starting them, but thanks to medication and intensive therapy, I'm all better now. But back to Elijah. (laughs) You say, please. I think we would all agree that Mount Carmel would be classified as a mountaintop victory. But immediately after that, one woman named Jezebel sends word to Elijah that she's going to have him killed. Now, you would have thought that Elijah would have said, listen, lady, you don't want none of this. I just executed all of your false prophets, and I'm fresh out of pagans to kill. So if I were you, I'd make a tuna casserole, find a chick flick on TV, and just call it a fabulous day. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He runs for his life and hides in a cave. He even prays, Lord, I just want to die. Now, how does that make any sense? Because after a mountaintop, there can often come a very deep and dark valley that we must walk through. Example, Jesus is baptized. God thunders from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What happens next? He is driven into the wilderness where he is to be tempted by Satan. So after your next big victory, just be prepared in case there is a valley. Just know you're in good company. Now, David was very expressive as he wrote the Psalms, and this brings up a good point. We see in the Scripture that where people are the strongest naturally is also where they are the most vulnerable. David's strength is he talked to God and to people about God. His vulnerability now is he is talking to himself. Noah was a sober and righteous man. He realized the time that he lived in was crucial and critical. And so he lived his life of great sobriety. But later on, what happened to Noah? He got plastered by drinking too much wine and laid naked in his tent. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth, we're told. Well, what does he do? He loses his temper and strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. Abraham is called the father of faith. What does he do? He tells Sarah to lie and say that he is her brother because he's afraid for his life. Peter, a man of incredible courage and strength, takes out his sword, and he's ready to fight the entire temple guard that came into the garden to arrest Jesus. But just a few hours later, as he sits by a fire, a little girl says, Hey, you're one of his disciples. Peter's response? In fear. He curses and swears and denies that he never even knew Jesus. So we see that in the area of our greatest strength, 
can also be the area of our greatest weakness. That's something we should all keep in mind. Now listen, one of the things you must be careful about if you're interested in seeking God or staying spiritually strong are the kind of people that you hang out with because they can invariably drag you down. You'll begin to make small compromises that lead to spiritual cracks than ungodly chasms. You'll find yourself saying things like, oh, doing this with them isn't all that bad, or, you know, I find these people are more accepting and less judgmental than many of them who call themselves Christians. Well, as the kids say, duh, why wouldn't you? Those people have no real standard for judgment or behavior. There is no Christ, no Bible to reject. For them, anything goes. Be careful around such people. Verse 4. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Now please notice in verse 4 that being out of tune with God somehow produces a false sense of peace. Word soon reached Saul that David has fled to Gath, so he stopped hunting for him. David had gotten rid of Saul's advances by running to the enemy, but it was a false sense of security. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the blessings of life necessarily are a sign of God's approval of your actions. David may have felt better out from under Saul's persecution, but he was also out from under God's sovereign will. Now, Hebrews 11.25 talks about enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. Sin has its exhilarating moments, but they are only temporary. But at first sight here, it seems that it makes good sense to give in to the devil. We are told, and it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. The battle is called off. The pressure is finally released. The enemy withdraws, and for the moment, it seems like David has peace. Now listen to the following quote. Give in to the devil, and I promise you, without any possible doubt the enjoyment of peace immediately. If you want that kind of stupefying drug, you can have it. Only move, as David moved, into enemy-occupied territory, and Satan will get off your neck. There will be three cheers in hell, and you will have a lovely sense of freedom for a time. Now, this can happen to you and I as well. We can say, I'm tired of struggling with the people of God. So I'll just hang out with the world in Philistine country. And for a while, just like in the case of David, we will discover the enemy isn't chasing me anymore. But please listen to me. If you quit reading your Bible, praying, and going to church, and if you pull away from Christian fellowship, if you isolate yourself from godly influences, you will find out, hey, this is actually pretty cool. I don't have nearly the struggles I used to have, at least not initially. Why? Because the enemy isn't going to bother you. And do you know why? It's because you now no longer pose any threat whatsoever to the kingdom of darkness. Satan is happy to leave Christians alone as long as they will sit on the spiritual bench and offer no resistance. You can always have momentary success if you forget God and take matters into your own hands. 
The only downside of that is who sows to the flesh from the flesh reaps corruption. If in your Christian walk you can honestly say that you experience little or no warfare, that's not a good sign, my friend. What will happen to David is highly instructive to us. Because we're going to see later in the life of David that although giving up was initially easier, ultimately it's going to prove disastrous. You see, David now has two masters, God and Gath. Do you remember what Jesus said about such relationships? You can't serve two masters. You always love the one and hate the other. Now, David is going to have to stay there almost a year and a half and stew in his own grease. The mystery is, why do we go back to those places and those people that sucked us in before? Why does it deal with us that if we're not careful, we always gravitate back to the flesh? We can be so incredibly stupid. Now, don't be offended at that. I'm talking about the person sitting next to you. Well, we can be such dorks sometimes. Verse 5. And David said to Achish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. David says, look, we're not worthy to dwell in the same city that you're in, so please just give us a city. And the king gives them Ziklag. But take note of verse 7. It says they dwelled there for a year and four months. Reminds me of that old saying that Pastor John quoted to us last Wednesday night. It says, Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Now we're going to see this in the life of David. Verse 8, please. And David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to shore, even as far as the land of Egypt. When David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. Then Achish would say, Where have you made a raid today? And David would say, Against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the, those guys, or against the southern area of the Canaanites. They would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, Lest they should inform on us, saying, Thus David did. And thus was the behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Achish thought that David was attacking the cities and towns in Judah, when in reality they were raiding the towns and camps of the allies of Achish. But in order to make Achish think that he was attacking Israel, David was obliged to slaughter every man, woman, and child, everybody, to leave no trace at all of his attack. Now simply put, David is lying, or in church terms, he is speaking evangelistically. That's when someone asks a pastor how many people are in his church. He says, oh, about 400, which in actuality is rounding up from the 38 people that sometimes show up. 
Now, thinking David was killing his own countrymen, Achish was delighted. Surely David would be loyal to him now, he thought. But Achish didn't know of David's propensity at this point in his life to tell lies. At Saul's table, we see David telling Jonathan to lie for him. David then lied to Ahimelech that he was on a secret mission from Saul. Later, he will lie to Uriah to cover up his affair with Bathsheba. Now we ask ourselves, how could a man after God's own heart lie like that? Because God uses imperfect people. Aren't you glad? Others might say, how could God use him or her or them? Because God sees the heart. Now this doesn't justify David's lying in any way. For not only will it get him in all kinds of trouble, it's also going to get a bunch of people killed. Therefore, this is not a justification for lying, but rather it's an indication that God sees the heart of a man or a woman. Now, God doesn't give up on David. And David eventually will come up to the point where he will cry in Psalm 120, verse 2, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. The Bible is deeply honest and utterly realistic. The Bible is about real people and a real God. And real people have weaknesses as well as strengths, failures as well as successes, and defeats as well as triumphs. In other words, in chapter 27, we have begun to see what will become very clear in due course. The brilliantly gifted David was also a man, as James says, with a nature just like ours. In himself, he was more than capable of doubting God, of giving way to fear, and of self-protective action with no reference to God at all. Now, the alarming conclusion, if we have understand this chapter correctly, is that David possessed all the weaknesses that led to Saul's downfall. This is obviously a departure from the high standard of faith that characterizes the life of David. It's just a period of him letting down. We find the same thing happened to Abraham. It happened to Isaac, and it happened to Jacob. In fact, it seems that most of God's servants have had this low period in their lives. In closing, there is a message for you and I in this chapter. Perhaps this very day you are faced with problems. Perhaps you've been in a dark valley for a long time, and you wonder if you'll ever come through it. There seems to be no solution to your problems. Well, if there's any comfort in that, note there are many others who have been through that same valley. It is a well-worn path in the Christian life. And David walked that path long before you and I got here. This is one of the reasons that David has been such a help to me in my own Christian life. Because I can certainly sympathize with him. And I hope you can too. And Father, we are all crooked sticks in here in one way or another. We are thankful, Lord, that you use us in spite of us sometimes. But that's not how you want to leave us, Lord. You want us to grow and mature And we pray that that would be the heart of everybody in here. Draw us closer to you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.